1940s until the late 1980s, the majority view within the Labour Party was against joining and then in favour of leaving the European Economic Communities, later known as the European Union. Yet by the 2016 referendum on leaving the EU among Labour members and supporters and most MPs, Euroscepticism had become a byword for imperial nostalgia, racism and the rest of it. The party's first radical left leader was forced against his better judgment to oppose leaving the EU with disastrous consequences. Joining me, James A. Smith, to discuss the tragedy of Labour Euroscepticism on the popular show is Dr. Richard Johnson, a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Richard, you're working on a comprehensive history of Euroscepticism in the Labour Party from Attlee to Starmer, a subject you've uh, commentated on since the 2016 Brexit referendum. And you've joined us to offer a precy of what the archival research you've been doing for that project has thrown up on this strange and contested history. But before we start uh, with all that, you voted leave. How do you feel that your reasons for doing so and those you've imbibed from the history of the Eurosceptic movement, um, how do you feel that those things in, 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 in general are being reflected in how Brexit is being handled now? I guess I was drawn to supporting leave in many ways for the same reasons that I was drawn to the Labour Party. Um, my reasons for voting leave were a belief in democracy and the importance of democratic control over national decision making, um, a belief in a certain type of political economy uh, where you could have economic planning and use the tools of economic planning to redistribute wealth and opportunity across the country. Um, and also from a certain perspective that the world is uh, a bigger place than just continental Europe. And I guess I never saw those as in conflict with my, uh, my support for the Labour Party. And at the time of the referendum, I think there were certainly Labour people who were curious when they heard my position, but they were not particularly knowledgeable necessarily about that history. I think in many ways that history mm. was submerged. What's happened, I think, now is that, you know, people sort of say to me, well, was this the Brexit that you voted for? And I guess Brexit for me is, was fundamentally, it was a, a constitutional change. And then what happens after constitutional changes for us, the electorate to make the most of it? You know, it'd be like changing the electoral system. And then, you know, the, the government that changes the electoral system does unpopular things. And you say, well, is this what you voted for? But, you know, it's that, that's sort of missing the point really. So if Brexit hasn't delivered everything that I've wanted it to deliver, and certainly it hasn't in terms of the kind of model of political economy that I want to see, that's not because we were wrong to leave the EU. It's because we've not actually made use of the, uh, the policy tools that leaving the EU has given us. And that's just something that we need to fix through our electoral process, through electing um, a government that's more inclined to do that and putting pressure on that government to, to make real good use of those tools of uh, national planning and a changed kind of trading arrangement with the rest of the world. In a way, th there's an irony here that before we actually left the EU, we had a general election in this country with 
a, a kind of unprecedented level of polarization in what was on offer and two political projects maybe two manifestos as well that did sort of offer what you're describing did offer um programs that wanted to make full use of the entire scope of what a democracy can do with its state apparatus now that we've actually left the eu we're staring down the barrel of a, a likely next general election where the parties are unprecedentedly close to each other uh to sort of smooth technocrats uh running against each other with all of that right and left populist nonsense from 2019 safely put back in the box phil cunliffe um another university of london colleague and another uh, left brexiteer has recently argued that while britain has left the eu it continues to behave like a democratically subdued member state still deferring to technocratic anti-democratic bodies like the bank of england consenting to the international consensus on lockdowns ukraine and so on what, what would it take to get britain as a whole behaving in the way you describe what would it take to um be pressuring politicians to actually use the opportunities of brexit as you see them there seems to be an enormous vacuum on the on the left in terms of serious thinking about the opportunities that brexit delivers and i've just found myself you know constantly frustrated since i was going to say 2016 but actually it's really more since after the 2017 election where there was a return to trying to relitigate the the referendum result there was this odd sort of year where the labor party accepted the leave result i think was so stunned by the result was stunned into acceptance of it and started to fashion to look to, to actually look you know people like barry gardner when he was um trade shadow trade secretary started to look at you know different trade trading arrangements we could have a more humanitarian uh, trading policy there was some discussion about state aid you know the, these things were sort of on the table i personally believe that the 2017 election uh, the, the, you know, the result that Labour received was creditable to the fact that Labour had accepted Brexit and was actually looking at how Brexit could be used to achieve um, a more radical agenda. I mean, that election result between the two years between 2015 and 17, the Labour popular vote goes up 10 points. Labour has its only net gain in seats since 1997. Um, and that that, that shift in the popular vote, Labour hadn't seen between two elections since between 1935 and 1945. Um, and that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't, um, that wasn't Remainers driving that. The majority of the seats that Labour gained off the Tories in England were leave voting seats. So there was a moment, and I thought this is really actually an opportunity to recalibrate calibrate trust in the British electorate, who had felt that there was this kind of cosy consensus in the political class for so long. And in a way, Brexit kind of, you know, tore, tore, tore that kind of shield that, you know, the political class had been hiding behind away and exposed them and say, look, if you want our votes, you're going to have to do and say something a bit different. But that hung Parliament and the perception then that actually the, the Leave 
result could be reversed, completely change the narrative, um, and particularly you know among politicians and the journalistic class. And really, what we found now, where we find ourselves now, is that the left has wasted the last few years, not wishing to even contemplate Britain outside of the EU. And even now that we're out of it, it's all you know the left discussion. You know, when I'm saying the left and the Labour Party is, you know, is it's it's it circles around damage control and mitigation, yeah. and that's not going to inspire. Um, people and so, you know, I, I th you know, I think maybe you know maybe Labour can, you know, Labour's obviously doing very well in the polls at the moment, and it can kind of come into government by default. But I think that if it comes into government and doesn't really truly exploit the more radical policy toolkit that it has now, then it won't be in government for very long. So that's the challenge, you know, that needs to be put to the Labour Party. Let's go back to um, to the, the the scope of the research that you you've been doing. I, I think that as um, that that kind of process you you described of the the left and Labour supporters and Labour voters seeming to turn against the 2017 um, embrace of Brexit that uh, Labour had under Corbyn, um, the the sort of a sort of stereotype took hold that. People were used to thinking of the Labour Party as the party of Europe, as it had been for several decades or a couple of decades at that point. And they were also willing to think of Jeremy Corbyn as this kind of part of a minority tradition of the sort of dandruff left of, of hard left wingers who had who had always sort of grumpily dragged their feet as far as European integration was concerned. But the work that you're doing really kind of gives a flavor of quite how broad the consensus of Euroscepticism was in the Labour Party for a very long time and quite how far outside this kind of stereotype of the of the hard left um, antagonism really to to uh, to European integration to, ran. So, could you give us a sort of bit of a sketch of how that that played out from from the the fifties into the seventies? Yeah, so that's uh, that's a really important point. That you know, I think to the extent you know, in twenty sixteen, when I was telling fellow Labour Party members that I was um, voting to to leave, they were. To the extent that they were aware of a tradition of Labour Euroscepticism, they kind of associated it with the 1983 election, Michael Foot and Tony Benn, and you know, to the extent that Jeremy Corbyn was perceived as having kind of Eurosceptic sympathies, it was seen as some kind of eccentricity of the hard left, basically. And what I have uncovered with my research is that Euroscepticism was the mainstream position in the Labour Party from the first moves to create the European coal and steel community right through to the late 80s. And there was, of course, there were people in the Labour Party who were, were pro-integration, but for the vast majority of that time, they were on the back foot or they were seen, they were seen as the uh, you know, idealistic or eccentric minority within the party. There's a document, an NEC document called European Unity, which was written in 1950. And it was actually written by Dennis Healy. 
um, when he was international officer of the Labour Party. It was presented to the NEC with Clement Attlee present, and it was un un uh, unanimously accepted by the NEC, in which it set out Labour's position on a project of European unity. And it said, no socialist party with the prospect of forming a majority government can consent to uh, sending up major powers of economic decision-making to a supranational representative European authority. And really, you know, that core belief was sort of the thread that ran through Labour until the late 1980s. And so a lot of people, you know, are unaware. One of the things I'm trying to, you know, show is that, you know, some of Labour's greatest celebrities, Clement Attlee, uh, Aniran Bevan, the founder of the NHS, spoke out and wrote out against Britain joining the Cold and Steel community and then the Treaty of Rome and opposing joining um, in the 60s. Um, and then, you know, right up to kind of the figures in the 70s, like Barbara Castle and Peter Shaw, we, we know. But actually, a majority of Labour MPs in the 1975 referendum voted to, to, to get out. Um, what were some of their reasons? Why, why, why were they opposed? I think there were, you know, there, I've sort of categorized it in these three um, broad themes. One is a concern about democratic decision making and actually a real faith in um, British parliamentary democracy and the power of British parliamentary democracy to achieve radical change. I think informed by the experience of the Attlee government, there was a real view in, in the Labour Party that this rather old, archaic constitution can be quite easily repurposed for quite transformational ends. The NHS is in some ways um, a peculiar creation of the British constitution because under our constitution, if you put something in a manifesto, and you have one vote majority in the lower chamber of the legislature, you can get it done. You know, you don't, you know, you don't have to be concerned about an anti-majoritarian Senate or some kind of presidential veto, or perhaps most um, crucially for the left, a concern about perhaps a constitution that constitutionalizes, say, um, private property rights and allows uh, judges to um, block decisions passed by the legislature. So for the NHS, you know, um, part of the NHS involved the confiscation of private property in the form of the um, of the private hospitals and the, the charitable hospitals that were all nationalized under the NHS. And, you know, the system that we have looks quite dissimilar, actually, from most public health services around the world because of its integrated structure. And in many ways, that was part, partly politically possible because of the unique features of the British constitution. So there was a lot of, so that, you know, that was one tradition that was really important. Related to that, but, you know, having its own dis distinctive edge was about actually what was in the Treaty of Rome mm -hmm. and what were the particular powers that joining would be needed to, would need to be conceded. And at the core of those was one, a concern about how the Treaty of Rome, you know, is about creating a market. And it's not just about, you know, making the exchange of goods easier, but it's actually 
constitutionalizing certain market rights against government action, um, such that businesses can take uh, can take governments to court for legislation that they might pass that runs contrary to the theory of this ever more integrated single European market. And that was something that really worried uh, people in the Labour Party um, in, in, a big, in a big way. Um, and also conceding things like, you know, regional development became a policy competence of the European Commission. And so, you know, I always have these people telling me, oh, well, look at all these, you know, European regional development stickers here, there and everywhere. Well, that's industrial policy. Uh, the problem is that we're not in control of that when we're in the EU. It's great, you know, it's great to have regional development, but it's not like we didn't have regional development before we were in the EU. Actually, there's some great speeches by Neil Kinnock in the 70s, where this is his big concern, where he says, look, when, I, when there's a Labour government, I can get them to put regional development money into, in, into my bits of Wales, and I can lobby my government to get that done. And once it becomes a competence of the commission, I can only hope they'll do it. And if they don't do it, you know, what recourse really do I have? And the final kind of theme of Labour Euroscepticism in this time was there was a group of Labour MPs and activists who were very involved in the um, kind of decolonization movement and mm -hmm. were very, you know, this is in many ways actually the root of Hugh Gates School's Euroscepticism, which was a kind of idealism about what the Commonwealth could become as a new kind of world community where a multiracial Commonwealth of countries where everyone was st standing as equals together, you know, with all kinds of different experiences all around the world. And that to the extent that Britain had a particular role in that, that was a role of um, helping to lift up these newly independent countries that had thrown off the shackles of empire. And there was this real, I think, quite legitimate concern that the, the focus of British foreign policy would, would turn massively away from those um, as we had to do, do more and more to align ourselves with the priorities of the rest of the countries in, in, in the European common market as it, as it was then. So democracy, socialism, and internationalism, I think, are the three kind of core values of Labour Euroscepticism. On that last, those of us who, who supported Brexit got used to being accused of being part of a red-brown alliance and, and being uh, xenophobes and, and so on. But you've, you've found Judith Hart, MP, referring to the EEC as a neo-colonial project where the white tribes of Europe were teaming up together to create a circle of privilege. That's uh, an amazing find. And, and maybe you could tell us about Lisa Nandy's father, Deepak Nandy. Yes, so that was um, that was an unexpected find in my um, in my searches. So uh, Lisa Nandy's father, Deepak Nandy, who's 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 still alive, is quite old now. Um, was very involved um, throughout his. He was an academic, but he was also very involved in his career in kind of the race relations act reforms of the 60s and 70s through the Runnymede Trust and other um, organizations. And I was curious 
to I so I obviously my book is about labor euroscepticism, but I was looking through the papers of Enoch Powell, um, who in effect collaborated behind the scenes with Harold Wilson in the 74 elections to try to get um, Labour elected so that that referendum to take Britain out could be um, implemented. Um, and so looking for his, looking at his correspondences from that election period in early 74, and I found a letter from uh, Lisa Nandy's father, Deepak, to Enoch Powell. And he says to Powell that um, although he disagrees with Powell's views on race and on immigration, uh, he was glad that Powell was raising the European issue. And also, in a way which I think is just unthinkable now in terms of the way that political discourse is had, he said, because in, in February 74, Powell actually left the House of Commons. Um, he would return later, but he was, he was standing down. And Deepak Nandi said that was such a shame and he said, um, even though they disagreed on many issues, he thought that he made an important contribution to British politics. So um, it's not a major part of the story, but it was just a kind of curious, uh, curious find that sometimes pops up in these archives. I, I think that is sort of one of those kind of examples of a of a historical document, and it's not even that long ago. It's it's somewhere within living memory that just sort of hits you like lightning as far as how much things have, have changed and how much how impossible it is to imagine you know the face of british fascism and the um you know indian born chair of the roundtree foundation you know the the um kind of figure of a certain sort of non-profit ngo progressivism uh nonetheless agreeing on the principle that both of them should have a fair shot as it were democratically speaking and both of them seeing um uh, uh this um yeah this de democratic argument against european immigration as 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 mutually um mutually beneficial it, uh, that that's an amazing um amazing little find absolutely so tell us how the conversion took place what happened in the 1980s that meant that uh, we went from Euroscepticism being the mainstream position in Britain's left Liberal Party to um, Labour being the party of Europe. So it's a really interesting change and it happens a lot more slowly than I had originally thought. So the way that I'd understood the story before I started to do this research was that basically in 1983, with the longest suicide note in history, Labour's Manifesto, as it was um, called at the time by its critics. Um, this was one of the um, laundry list of kind of far left um, you know, priorities that was thrown in against the wiser judgment of everyone else in the movement. And obviously once Labour was roundly defeated in 1983. It demonstrated um, what a crazy idea leaving was and Labour never returned to it again. But of course, actually, uh, the reality was that the Labour Party, both the membership and the Labour MPs, had never really converted to the European cause. So in 75, Wilson and uh, members of the cabinet uh, not all of them, but uh, majority members of the cabinet voted, campaigned for staying in. But they were actually out of step with where the rest of the Labour Party was. And the Labour Party had a special, had two special conferences on Europe 
in the 70s and in both conferences um, the delegates overwhelmingly voted um, against uh, the common market and basically the party's position and the party's official position the 75 referendum was to leave so there's this kind of odd situation where you had uh, Wilson saying let's stay in but the Labour Party printing posters and I have one of them that says Labour, the Labour Party says no to the common market and after the referendum, kind of in a reverse um, parallel to what happened after 2016, there's a brief time where everyone kind of says, right, well, we have to respect the referendum result. But quickly that changes. And actually, one of the reasons why it changes is because people are people in the Labour Party um, object to the election of MEPs. Um, so they view the election of MEPs as a sort of facade or a mirage of democracy in the EC. And they see it as a kind of sleight of hand. And it gives a an air of legitimacy to an institution that they feel is fundamentally undemocratic. And so by the time that Foote becomes leader um, in uh, late 1980, uh, who himself was always a Eurosceptic, he's pushing on an open door with the party. The party and party conferences in the early 80s overwhelmingly votes to support withdrawal. And in, in the early 80s, Judith Hart, who we mentioned earlier, who'd been a cabinet figure, a Eurosceptic cabinet figure, who was very much from that internationalist wing, actually led a delegation from the NEC to um, Brussels to begin negotiations for leaving in case Labour won the next election. There's fascinating documents about what they're negotiating over. It's many of the same things that happened when, after we actually voted to leave. Mm. Um, and it, curiously, there's a little section that says Northern Ireland's going to be a tricky one. Um, <laughs> we, so even then, they, they realized that. But after the 83 defeat, um, Labour didn't abandon its withdrawal policy under Kinnock for a long time. And I didn't realize that. That was That's not the, the story that been told. But the party's official policy remained withdrawal until 1988. So Kinnock's line on it between 83 and 88, so for the first five years of his leadership, was we want reform, but if they cannot fundamentally reform, then we will leave. And it was a bit of a fudge. It was a bit of a softening of the position, for sure. And it was a reflection of where public opinion was actually at the time, where uh, British public opinion had moved basically to accept membership. But it still reflected a Euroscepticism in the party. And I think what happened, what changed, was actually that 87 defeat where, you know, Labour made a little bit of progress, but it was still a pretty convincing defeat for Labour. And I think that was when Labour really started to lose faith in parliamentary democracy in a way that, you know, it hadn't earlier on. And there was this sort of conception that, gosh, you know, you know, maybe the British public are not going to vote for a socialist party, um, outwardly socialist party, and maybe we're going to be stuck with the Tories for a very long time. And perhaps Labour, perhaps Europe, through Jack Delors and the kind of social Europe soundings, can give us a kind of baseline of social protection, even if it's imposing a cap on what national governments can achieve 
Um, at least we have that baseline. And so originally it was a I think it was a pragmatic shift born out of de defeat and a certain loss of faith. But what's interesting is that in the decade or so to come, that kind of pragma pragmatism became a more rigid dogma hmm. about, about Europe. And that's what I think kind of led, led Labour into the very messy position that it found itself in, um, you know, in the, in the 2010s, where it had forgotten that its move to embrace Europe was, um, was, a, was not a, a deep-seated one of kind of a faith in the European project. Um, but it, that's what it sort of almost became, but in a way that I felt was quite unthinking. And actually, yeah. when when you sort of delve down into it, a lot of Labour members weren't even really aware of that history or really aware of what being in the European Union means for what a government cannot do and, and what, what it has to, um, you know, as Phil Cunliffe said, sort of has to at least, you know, the best it can do is sometimes just go, you know, with a begging bowl, pretty please. Um, almost in the way that you might go to the king during the Ancien Regime and sort of hope that they'll be benevolent um, to you. And uh, that was a that that period then was from the 90s onwards. That was a very big and fundamental shift in how yeah. Labour related to Europe. Yeah, it's, a, it's another terrible irony, really, that um, it should be forgotten that the the left's conversion to Europe was precisely an act of of desperation in defeat and a kind of grubby backroom deal, really, uh, born out of having no faith or trust that the the British people would democratically deliver any of its program ever again. Flash forward to 2017, which, uh, as you argue, was really the moment when that kind of passionate Europhile identity started to spread on the left. It was only after the 2017 election mm. that you started to have these these you know people painting their faces and so on and and uh, pretending that they'd always thought that the EU was completely flawless for that new europhile identity to be born after 2017 is the the exact wrong lesson because the 2017 outcome disproved that that desperate uh, conclusion from the 80s you you just had 40% of the country voting um for the most radical program ever offered in the history of British democracy. The the the, the irony to that that you sort of didn't realize that this was a this should be a kind of you know a a, a vindication of uh, of of national democracy. It, it's um it's absolutely terrible to look back on. But there was another story um uh, to what was going on in, in the 80s as you've you've alluded to, which was the story of of a kind of organized resistance to some extent to um to that that uh, that shift that Kinnock was introducing um could you talk us through some of the the discoveries you've made there who who was opposed and what were they doing so initially there were quite a few labor mps you know well over 100 labor mps who in the late 80s still identified as as Eurosceptic and were members of um, the Labour Common Market Safeguards campaign. And those MPs, you know, I think basically the position that Labour had found itself in and the country had found itself in was that there was no, there was no sense that 
a referendum or general election with a manifesto pledge for leaving was going to, going to happen soon. And this led the kind of Eurosceptics in the party to take differing views about what the next step ought to be. And you had some who really said, look, we just need to keep pushing and pushing on this to get it in the manifesto to, you know, to, to restore that pledge to, to, to withdraw. You have others, you know, like Barbara Castle, who became an MEP. And actually, that becoming an MP, MEP was one of the most Eurosceptic things you could do in the early 80s because the vast majority of Labour MEPs were Eurosceptic. Uh, and that's very more, funny to, to realise because yeah. uh, today we associate that with, with UKIP or, or Nigel Farage sort of sending these troublemakers who don't believe in Europe over to the European Parliament to sort of cause trouble. But that was Labour's role, as, as you show. That's right. And they were, they were actually, they were troublemakers and they, they conducted all kinds of stunts that um, annoyed um, the more pro-EC um, MEPs. And they had a few allies. The Danish left were fairly Eurosceptic. And actually, Greenland had one uh, socialist MEP and Greenland had a referendum in the early 80s to and voted to leave, um, I think, 51-49 or 53-47, pretty close margin, but Greenland voted to leave. Um, so there were a few others, but basically the British Labour MEPs were known as the most Eurosceptic MEPs in the 80s. Barbara, Barbara Castle, who was their leader, her, she, she remained a Eurosceptic, but her view was the way that we should get out, basically, is to elect a Labour government that defies EU rules and then let them kick us out. That was her words in um, uh, an article that she wrote. Um, and, and I guess what was happening in the late 80s was there, was, there were people saying, okay, we, we need to keep the faith on leaving and others saying um, that that option is no longer available. So we need to stop further integration. And the battle in the 90s kind of moved into the question about single currency and, and Maastricht um, uh, and so on. So in a way, the kind of Eurosceptic movement kind of took different tactics and that kind of weakened it a bit. Kinnock, there were, there were Labour MPs who were writing to Kinnock saying, look, what Delors is offering is um, a mirage. And even like someone like David Blunkett um, found letters that Blunkett wrote to uh, Kinnock in, in late 88 hmm. saying, you know, this kind of, so Blunkett used to Blunkett used to go to Europe a fair, fair, fair bit. And he said, I've been listening to these like center-right, right-wing um, European leaders and MEPs, and they're talking about this, this single market, not as the great triumph of social democracy, but the great triumph of capitalism. And he said, to be honest, I think that's a much more realistic assessment of what this plan looks like. And, and Kinnick just kind of, Kinnick dismisses it. I think what happened for Kinnick, who had been a very arch Eurosceptic earlier in his career, is that Europe offered him a, a friendly platform to, to punch the, the Thatcher government. And particularly Delors and uh, Mitterrand, um, they kind of welcomed Kinnock as a world leader in a way that he was struggling to find acceptance elsewhere. I think Reagan had kind of humiliated him by refusing to meet with him or something when he went to DC and so on. And, and so that kind of helped 
Kinnock, in his, in his view, build a sense of his statesmanship. Um, but, you know, there were plenty of Labour MPs also kind of saying, you know, what we're agreeing to sign away are the basic policy instruments that previous Labour governments have used um, to achieve our social goals. And it's not quite clear what we're going to do once we're in government if we give all these things away. What was the Labour Common Market Safeguards Committee? So they were set up um, around the time of the 75 referendum. And in effect, they were the home of the of the kind of Eurosceptic movement in the in the Labour Party. They were led in 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 large part by MEPs who were passionate about leaving and remained passionate about leaving right to um, the end. And some of these MPs, um, you know, would, you know, depends how much people follow Labour politics. Someone like Austin Mitchell, who died um, uh, recently, were the MP for Grimsby for a long time, who was passionate about, say, the common fisheries policy and what that had done to um, fish, fishing um, up in, in, in the northeast, where he represented was part of it. There were MPs um, lesser known, like uh, uh, Ron Layton. Peter Shaw was very involved with them. The, the, the problem, I guess, with this group was that over time, they became seen as the kind of inflexible, um, mm. you have to leave group. And so in effect, what, what happened to them is they became the last carriers of that pro-withdrawal policy right up to the 2016 referendum. In, in many ways, that group became the Labour Leave group of the remaining Labour MPs who, um, you know, who actually actively supported and campaigned for Leave in, 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 in 2016. But by the Blair leadership, if you were seen as in that group, uh, you were seen as not ambitious, not serious, you were not going to get um, a ministerial appointment. And so it became, it was a disincentive to, to get involved. And even MPs who had been part of it, they, they walked away from it um, because they wanted to have a ministerial job. Um, and, it, and it became almost a kind of, you know, I, I went to some of their events in the early 2010s. Uh, I joined the party in 2009. And the those meetings at party conference were, you know, they're called fringe meetings, but they really were on the fringe of the fringe meetings by that, uh, by, by that point, um, which was a pity because in many ways they were representing a position that the Labour Party itself had seen as a very mainstream position for most of its history. And, I, and you know, and a good chunk of Labour voters, as was to be um, proven in the referendum itself, still held that view. And they were the last holding that candle, really. We've got your your views on 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 Corbyn on tape, and uh, our listeners have been hearing me say very similar things for uh, some time now. So maybe we should jump ahead to Keir Starmer, who is a figure who, you know, in in some ways, is just as complex the situation that he finds himself in relation uh, uh, to Europe, just as complex as the one that, that Corbyn ended up uh, ended up in. Um, well, I mean, Starmer himself is pretty much the human embodiment of 
technocratic managerialism sprinkled with a, a bit of top-down civil liberties um, version of social justice. So in other words, the exact same ideology as the European Union. Um, and yet here he is committing the party to Brexit, returning the party for the first time um, to, to uh, the, the firm commitment that you're showing was its mainstream position for um, much of its life. Um, Starmer's supporters are much better behaved and well disciplined than Corbyn's supporters were, and it, it sort of helps that Starmer has no pretense of believing in party democracy. So there's not much that Starmer's supporters could do if they didn't like what it was he was doing. But nonetheless, uh, whatever um, the polls say about the likely huge victory of Keir Starmer to come, uh, what do you see as the, the, the problems for him as far as Europe is concerned? I think the biggest problem is that there's no serious thinking that I can see coming out of the Labour front bench on what to do with Brexit in a positive sense. And this isn't about some kind of um, blind optimism or a sense of, well, um, you know, you have to kind of gin people up and, and, and make them feel spirited about it in some kind of swashbuckling, whatever the um, critique might be. This is about actually thinking now, okay, we have we have control now over state aid. We have control now over procurement. We have control over now our trade policy. Um, we have control over regional development. What are we gonna do with all that? And putting that together as a coherent package of both domestic and foreign policies as far as I can tell, is just is, is there's just silence on that. To the extent that Europe and Brexit comes up, it's about mitigating the damage. Um, you know, it's about um, you know having these warmer relations and so on. And yeah, that's fine. You know, we want to have good relations with all different parts of the world. But it it feels to me that even Starmer's acceptance of Brexit is not actually an acceptance of what Brexit means for what a Labour government must do with Brexit. And that is, I, I think that's his, going to be his Achilles heel, really, is, you know, it's it's one thing to basically accept the reality that if, <laughs> if a party, even now, with the way that the polls are, I really think that even now, for any party put forward that they were going to support rejoining the EU, it would, it would go down like a, you know, a bucket of cold sick. I mean, it, I just, I just, yeah. and, and he, you know, he must believe in his own self-preservation enough to recognize that. But the, the medium term and certainly the longer term issue for Starmer is that policy, uh, policy vacuum. And people, I think, I think voters, you know, if, if the red wall comes back to labor, which it might well do, if voters are not actually seeing an active industrial strategy in their area um, and, and actually, you know, hearing the connection being made with leaving the EU and positive changes that they might be seeing in their communities, then 
he, as I said before, I don't think he's going to be in government for for very long. Is part of the problem that the the peop, the constituencies that have protected him, that have made him, that have legitimated him, so the um, well, all of the the the, the Labour and Labour aligned media figures that gave Corbyn such a hard time and, and worked so hard to delegitimize him. They, they've, they've got in line. Um, the the civil service is is presumably very much in, in line with him. The the NGOs are th th this kind of section of, of, of bourgeois society. And then all of those managers, CEOs, head teachers, professional class people that felt very uneasy about Corbyn and now feel like they've got their guy. All of those sort of stereotypes, those character types that I've just described, all of them are looking at Starmer and seeing someone who is saying what he needs to say to get elected, but really he's our guy, really he's going to be the one who brings us back to Europe. It is there's a there's a, a kind of way in which as much as Corbyn was accused of uh, strategic ambiguity and and kind of doing this tightrope routine of, of keeping all these um, all these groups happy, Starmer's in exactly the same position, um, only with people who've got a lot more power in society, even if for now they are willing to keep more quiet about it. I I, I think that even from a just from a sort of class analysis point of view, it, it's hard to imagine Starmer actually being able to deliver on what you're describing, even if he's undertaken some sort of conversion <laughs> whereby he, he he does now authentically believe in it. Well, I do sometimes hear people say, well, he doesn't really mean it. And they say that as a positive. You know, so yes. um, he's really... He's saying what he needs to say because he knows where the focus groups are. He knows what the polling is and he knows what he needs to say to win back those crucial uh, so-called Red Wall seats. And that when he's in government, he will seek greater alignment with the EU. And, you know, even the more fantastical people say, you know, perhaps puts us back on the path to rejoining. Although I really think, you know, I think if, if, Starmer or the Labour, Labour government did that, really, that would be so dangerous for um, British politics. I, I think that there would be um, the backlash to that could be very severe and could see, you know, them empowering quite dangerous forces in, in, in British politics um, in, 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 in doing that. I, I it's hard to re it's very difficult i think to um you know read his mind um because it seems to change so much but as you say sort of knowing his biography and his trajectory before becoming um leader i would i would have to conclude that you know where starmer will try to take labor is to use the use his government to seek greater alignment what that means in a formal sense i'm not 
to shore, but it could mean actually you know, making some actual policy concessions back to the EU. Um, uh, and that would be a, a huge mistake. Um, I, I still do have faith that, you know, if you get a majority in the House of Commons, you should be able to plough through with your agenda to seek radical change in this country and have the confidence that if you're doing things that are popular and the country are behind you, and we're on the popular show after all, that that is, the, that is, that is where your strength can come from. And for all of his flaws, I think Boris Johnson recognized this when it came to 2019, where eventually Johnson's constant refrain was, give me an election, let me have an election. Yeah. Um, because he knew where the British public were on that. And, um, you know, make, you know, and if we think about different democratic moments in British history, whether that's the, you know, the people versus the peers or whatever, if you can frame your agenda in that way, um, that can be huge. That can be a, that can hugely overpower some of these vested interests in British politics. But it won't work if you're kind of half-hearted about it. Uh, if you're kind of saying one thing one day, saying another thing another day, you have to really build the case for that agenda, um, and then trust that the public are with you. Um, on on that agenda to to see it through. Do I do I see Keir Starmer as the person who can who can can carry that off? Not particularly, to be perfectly be perfectly honest. Um, but that's where we are. Back with the 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 radical left, the the ex Corbynites. You're actually hard pressed today to find anybody who admits that they wanted a second referendum and they that they wanted to undo Brexit. It was very difficult to find anyone, enough people on the other side before 2019, but now uh, uh, nobody uh, professes to have ever believed in it. Um, well, you know, you, you have to sort of embrace um, these uh, changes of heart even when they come too late. The, the problem, um, as it strikes me, is that the the radical left, the ex-Corbynites, seem to encounter every new dilemma in the exact same spirit as they did um, the, the EU. And uh, listeners know I've, I've written about some examples of this in, in Jacobin. But May 6th is the coronation. And um, you, you've written about this in, in, in The Critic. And it's really striking how much um, the history of the relationship between the left, the Labour Party, and the monarchy in Britain has parallels with um, with Euros, the Eurosceptic position. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a huge kind of push for republicanism on the uh, on the radical left as we approach May. There's already been a, a little bit of it, but the the history um, that your research has brought out suggests that this would be a mistake in some ways similar to um, the the, the pro-European position that the left so recently undertook. Um, can, can you give us a, a bit of a, a sense of how the, the Labour left has historically seen the monarchy? I guess this goes to a, a certain way of analysing the British constitution, which... Um, you know, 
Walter Badgett talked about the, the dignified and the efficient constitution. And the dignified being this all the grand pomp and ceremony of the of the monarchy and the and the House of Lords and so on. But the efficient constitution being where actually power lies and where it's exercised, um, namely in the cabinet and in the House of Commons. And for much of its history, uh, the Labour Party, including the Labour Left, including people who, you know, I think personally would, um, you know, personally object to a, a system of hereditary privilege you know, of, of any sort, recognised that um, in the vast majority of uh, instances, you know, real power was not um, coming out of uh, out of the crown. And, and that's become more and more the case over time. And so the focus for, as a matter of socialism, you know, the uh, religion of socialism being language of priorities is that the focus should be um, on, on attacking the economic questions when the monarchy or indeed even an appointed house of lords is ultimately a fairly benign eccentricity of the constitution rather than an actual veto player in the system. Um, and then there are some, you know, Attlee, for example, saw a, you know, a benefit in some ways from the way that the British monarchy had evolved because the monarchy in its desire to be non-partisan means that it has to give its imprimatur to whatever the agenda of the government of the day is. And that could include a socialist government's agenda. And so you end up putting the king or queen uh, in a position where the king or queen is signing off the nationalization of the mines and the shipyards um, and the health service and the railways, etc. And actually in doing that, especially if the monarch has this kind of general public sympathy behind them for historic and deep-seated cultural reasons, which are difficult to shift, that from a pragmatic standpoint, that's not a terrible position for the Labour government to mm. find itself in. So even the Labour left, which obviously has been, has had, a, there has been a, certainly I don't want to dismiss, there has been a Republican strain within the Labour Party, absolutely. But there, are, there were plenty of people who personally were Republican or personally uncomfortable with hereditary monarchy, but kind of saw the st strategic advantage of it and also saw the what was most pressing for a Labour government and accepted and in some cases embraced the kind of odd situation of, a, of, a, of the constitutional monarchy that we find ourselves in uh, today. You cite Attlee uh, singling out Norway, Sweden and Denmark um, as countries where the greatest progress towards democratic socialism has been made in constitutional monarchies. And, and that really reminds me of the situation with arguments for 
changing the voting system to proportional representation in Britain today, which has, has been one of the, the few things that the ex-Corbynites have managed to get excited about in the last few years. And, and I mean, my feeling is the same as Atlee's. Show me the countries with proportional representation that are using it to vote in all these socialist policies now, and they're just not there. Similarly, there is no correlation between having a monarch and being progressive, radical, left-wing, and, and there are certainly arguments, so there are certainly examples to the, the contrary. Um, the, the other thing that I, I, I found very congenial that you um, you discovered in, in Attlee's writings was this idea that, um, uh, I mean, you, you've alluded to this, but that, that um, socialist policies, once they've won an election, in a situation where there is a, a monarch, that, that monarch sort of gives a kind of legitimacy and sort of closes closes the book on the debate to some extent so uh, i don't know it, it it maybe it sort of um promotes a kind of loser's consent which is very difficult for the left to to win i, I mean it, it as 2017 showed you can have a hell of a lot of you can get a hell of a lot of supporters for left-wing policies but you're always going to have a hell of a lot of highly motivated detractors and haters for them at the same time so i, I um, mean James, if you yeah. think about it you can you imagine the queen reading off jeremy corbyn's queen's speech yeah. i mean and, and and just actually basically having the queen read the labor manifesto you know it it, it it's a it's a for, for for the rights or wrongs of it, culturally speaking, it becomes a kind of comfort or a, legi a legitimation in mm. the eyes of uh, a huge section of the public. Funnily enough, the um, it's actually the idea of Charles reading out a Corbyn manifesto that I, I find the, mo <laughs> the most congenial. You know, I think the standard kind of attitude is well, the, uh, Elizabeth was okay. She uh, she sort of kept to her constitutional role, stayed out of politics, but but Charles is somehow unacceptable, undignified, always intervening with his own ideas. But somehow that that seems even more in keeping with the kind of um, the kind of strangely harmless constitutional role that can nonetheless have a, a, a huge and, and positive legitimating um, influence. Um, yeah, I, I actually found that very, very convincing and, and was glad to have those uh, those citations from, from Attlee uh, uh, on that. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us on The Popular Show. Dr. Richard Johnson will be looking out for um, the the book. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't get from the writings how far along in the in the process we are on the, this grand tome on Euros. I have a sabbatical next year, so it's going to have to, that's the period when it's going to be written. So it's going to be a little well, bit way off yet. Get your head down, and we look forward to having you back on to talk about it when it's done. But uh, these um, th th these hints and uh, uh, tidbits from the archival work are are hugely promising, and I think give a, a very very welcome nuancing of the picture of uh, something that has been unduly and and falsely polarized uh, in our politics in recent years. Uh, so yeah, once again, thank you very much for joining us on the Popular Show. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it.